You're listening to Leading with Empathy and Allyship, where we have deep, real conversations to build empathy for one another and to take action to become more inclusive leaders in our workplaces and communities. I'm Melinda Brianna Epler, founder and CEO of Change Catalyst. I'm a diversity, equity, and inclusion speaker, writer, and advisor. You can learn more about my work and sign up to join us for a live recording at changecatalyst.co slash allyship series. All right, let's dive in. So today, I'm excited to have Sam Seafood with us to talk about why mentorship and advocacy are keys to career growth. Sam is Artificial Intelligence Research Project Manager at Google. Welcome, Sam. So good to see you again. Really glad to have you. Thank you. So glad to be here, Melinda. Always delighted to see you. And uh, it's an honor for me to be participating in your show today. Awesome. The honor is mutual. So if you'll join me, let's just describe ourselves to our listening audience. Sure. Absolutely. I am a Persian white male. I'm about middle-aged. I happen to be wearing a red shirt today, a bright red polo shirt. I wear glasses and I'm high energy, very high energy. Great. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm a white woman with long red hair. I'm wearing a dark blue shirt and black and white glasses and medium energy, I'd say. Let me just describe the interpretation today for everyone. So Sam is signing in, in American Sign Language in ASL. Um, Dan is interpreting for Sam from ASL to English. So you'll hear his voice. And then Jewel will be on screen interpreting for me from English to ASL. And I just want to say, take a moment and say it's not hard to do this. So please think about it in your events. Please think about doing this. And we can definitely put you in touch with Interpreter Now, who does this regularly. And, and I'm happy to share the knowledge that, that we've gained around this as well. So, Sam, let's jump in. Can you tell us a little bit about your story and how you came to do the work you do? Sure, absolutely. I've had a long journey throughout my career, just like every one of us. In my situation, it was sort of unique, naturally. I was born in Iran, and I was born like a perfectly normal birth, just like every other kid's born. Uh, this was back in 1981, if you want to figure out how old I am. At the time of my birth, I had 10 fingers and 10 toes. Everything was normal. My parents never predicted that anything would have adjusted my health or anything about me. I was the first son in the family, the first child. So it was a lot of joy in our family. As uh, time started marching on until I was about the age of two, I contracted spinal meningitis, which caused my deafness. And this is an event that changed the entire course of my whole family's life. Because when I recovered from the illness, and I arrived home, my parents had a really difficult time trying to tell their two-year-old boy that he no longer could hear and that he wasn't going to hear again for the rest of his life. This, I had already maybe started to talk. I was identifying animal sounds at the time. I was able to listen to music, just everything that hearing two-year-olds were doing at the time. So suddenly, not having any more hearing ability was a big deal. I used to uh, watch TV a lot, and then suddenly I was not going to be able to do that anymore. And so my parents reacted to this by saying to themselves, this child deserves a better life, and, and he's going to get that through education. My parents were highly educated people. And so fortunately, I had their ongoing faith 
my hearing loss was not going to deter my success in life. So they wanted to make sure I had the right educational placements and had that had the right resources and had the right environment for my success. So long story short, we ended up moving a lot, immigrating to a lot of different countries, first to Germany and then to America, to, until my parents finally found the right deaf educational resources for me. They learned sign language themselves in order to be able to communicate with me. And so this is how I was able to grow up, build my self-identity and self-esteem as a deaf person. And they identified a special residential school for the deaf as opposed to a public school that might have a deaf program. When you're in a public school that has a deaf program, you're really not exposed to deaf adults or deaf members, deaf members of the community who could act as role models. You also have very few deaf peers in those environments, so you don't get the good socialization that you really need. So my parents chose a residential school for me so that I could meet all kinds of different deaf people, be exposed to successful deaf adults, see deaf people from all a variety of walks of life and get that exposure. So that really developed my deaf identity. Uh, and that's what built my self-confidence, my self-acceptance in who I am. My parents always taught me that deafness has nothing to do with one's ability to survive in life and pursue your goals. And you can go ahead and pursue your wildest dreams. It doesn't matter that you're deaf. And, and to have a positive attitude about breaking down barriers when they exist. And that once you have the right role models, the right environment, the right place, you can't help but succeed. And so that has extended into my employment. I've had a number of very successful employment uh, situations uh, for over 15 years in the HR field. I've, I've acted as a professional that's uh, been with learning development, helping corporations grow their workforce and support their workforce. And I feel like this all goes back to my motivation to give back to the world, to make sure that people are in the right place for themselves, in the right place at the right time for where they are in their lives. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I, I learned some things about you. We've known each other for a while. Can you then kind of talk about uh, how your career has progressed? You started in HR and then DNI, and now you're in a very, very different role. Can you talk a little bit about that? Some of the things that you've done, and, and maybe even also, even though you're you're in a new role, a very different role, are you bringing some of what you've learned into your work now? Absolutely, sure. The biggest reason why I pursued a career in HR is because I believe in serving people. Everyone in my family is involved in different capacities that way, whether it's healthcare or other fields. It's all about being of service to other people and wanting to be an advocate, wanting to be of service and inspire people. So HR was a perfect fit for me. And it's not so largely different from where I am now in a technical career. But uh, what I learned from HR or at HR is how to serve people through organizational change. This is where my passion is. How can I lift a diverse community? How can I make uh, business leaders help them to make the right decisions and help them grow more globally? And so I've had different HR functions from being a recruiter, HR business partner, different training opportunities, analyst, all different kinds of things. And, and what I've learned is the most important thing is how you 
motivate people. No matter what job you're in, no matter what stage of life you're in, you really can't get through life without having that flame inside to be motivated to be doing what you're doing. So it all goes back to that. You know, people say that at least a couple of times during your life, you're going to have a career change. This is pretty common. Some research says, you know, five to seven times you're going to change your career in your lifetime. And I believe that's true. So I left the HR field after 15 years, took a big leap into the tech world as a product manager. But you know what I've learned is how you motivate and inspire people and help them to understand their goals is really key. You know, building a strategic plan, helping people commit to that and deliver. It's those soft skills that I bring from HR to what I'm doing now, which is helping the company build truly amazing products that are going to change people's lives. But that foundation is there. I'm able to develop and inspire and, and motivate people through coaching and helping them solve problems and helping them pursue the projects that they're trying to deliver. So it's been a really good transition and transitioning happens you know, everywhere I go. Yeah, I have transitioned my career many times, and I believe that's actually what makes me stronger in the work that I do believe that having those unique experiences and working on different teams has made a difference in my life. Right. Could you tell us a little bit about what you're working on right now? I think it's really interesting. Sure, sure, absolutely. It's really interesting where we are with technology, with the revolution that's happening, and where the hot products are now and what they're being expected to deliver throughout the world. It's really an interesting time now. There's a lot of unrest. There's a lot of protest over civil rights and equality. And so trying to figure out how to integrate these technological changes with what's going on with human beings is really interesting. So I'm a part of a research team called Xeno. That's with an X, X-E-N-O, Xeno. And we do different research projects on artificial intelligence and machine learning, uh, hoping to develop quality interactions through uh, interactive media and social media. We're partnering with YouTube and L'Oreal, for example, the hair company, the the cosmetics company, uh, and how consumers can try on a lipstick or try on makeup without actually having to do it. Through special video effects on YouTube with this plugin, you can be actually trying on that pink lipstick on your camera and see if it looks good on you. Maybe you ought to change it to a more red color sort of thing. So this technology very precisely identifies parts of the face using a face mesh, uh, other 3D characters, and also it allows this interactivity to happen in real time. So it's really amazing, the technological improvements. Now, at the same time, there are some other projects we're overseeing, such as the development of sign language translation through the camera, which is going to be an amazing thing. This would allow 70 million people throughout the world who use sign language to be able to use the Google platform to sign to their camera and have that translated. So this is a kind of moonshot, you know, and Google really believes these sorts of things are possible. They're not impossible. So I was hired for my expertise in helping them build that. So it's just a really exciting time to bring these effects to people, bring these improvements to people to help them solve real world barriers uh, that have been access to communication. And, And this is what I do every day. That's awesome. You know, actually, this episode, we wanted to kind of talk about mentorship and advocacy. And I just wonder if there's even in the product work that you do, if you think about advocacy in particular, and and kind of how you think about that as you're doing that work around product. Yeah, I believe that well, self-advocacy as a deaf person, as somebody who's in a minority, it doesn't matter where you work or who you work for. Mm. 
even though what an amazing inclusive community you might find yourself in, you're always going to have to advocate for yourself because people aren't going to be aware of your barriers. And they're not going to know without you educating. So first of all, I've learned how to advocate for myself by speaking up. I'll say, hey, for example, now if I'm leading a team meeting, say, we're doing some strategic planning, I can't take notes. My eyes can only be in one place at a time. And so I have to be on the interpreter with my eyes and my hands have to be up while I'm signing. So there's no way. So I have to delegate mm -hmm. that responsibility to someone else who's willing to take notes in this meeting. You know, so first of all, it's nice to share that responsibility. Of course, when the meeting's over, I'm going to have to check and make sure if there's the notes are accurate because I'm going to have to use that to make assignments mm -hmm. and develop project trackers and things like that. So that's one thing. Another thing is I believe that sometimes my colleagues need support in order to succeed in their career personally. For example, a contractor who was working under me, I was supervising her, she was struggling with her own mental health. She was you know, working from home and she was really feeling more and more increasingly isolated. And I immediately responded and advocated for her. I said, I need to support your well-being here. And so it's sort of me sort of code switching almost to get into be more an advocate for her. Mm -hmm. So you not only have to advocate for yourself, but advocate for other people as well. It's, it's a real balance there that you need. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You've worked your way up the career ladder. And what are some of the barriers that you faced along the way? Um, and then, you know, how have you overcome those barriers and self-advocacy? And I think there's also people advocating for us as well. There's kind of three questions in one. <laughs> sure. I think what's most important is you know when you have to push, pull some levers in specific situation if needed. And not every mentor I've had has been the best advocate. You know, mentors, they're, they're good at their specific niche. They may be good at the specific domain knowledge that they have. For example, global HR projects or something. They're great with working with international teams or cross-cultural factors or something. Whereas a mentor I have now may be more uh, skilled with technical things, the whole tech world. Sometimes I don't really feel like I need a mentor as much as I need an ally sometimes because a mentor is someone, you know, I'm going to meet with you every Tuesday and Thursday and we're going to sit down and we're going to talk about things. An ally doesn't work that way. You can't just have the structured appointment. They have to be there ready to support you in any situation when you need to just bounce an idea off them or you just you need some motivation or you need to maybe overcome some huge barrier that's just been presented to you. You need to be able to, you know, get them quickly and say, hey, I'm stuck in this situation. You know, here's what it is. Can you point out uh, some things I should do? So an ally, ally is someone who may not be able to show up in person every time, but at least, you know, you're on their mind and they're going to support you in that situation to help you push and overcome, overcome a barrier. So an ally is really, well, and I have to judge carefully when it's time to pull the lever on uh, and get my ally or pull the lever and get my... Uh, mentor. And so that's what I've done throughout my career. Awesome. And are there somebody, an example or two that you can share where somebody has been really a meaningful ally for you in your life? Yes. Yeah. For example, let's say I want to get a promotion. I might call a mentor and say, hey, I'm thinking about applying for a promotion for a senior role. What's been your experience? How do you see these promotion decisions being made? What's the right preparation? What sorts of projects should I be mm -hmm. leading now in order to increase my visibility to senior leadership? Can you give me some tips? 
I'm not necessarily an expert in your domain. You're not necessarily an expert in disability, but there's an ally out there maybe who might not be in my career, but they may experience some personal barriers. For example, a very close friend of mine at Google named Sarah, been around Google for quite a long time. And let's say there's some issues with the interpreter budget and they're not going to fund a business trip or something and support my interpreter coming with me for uh, budget reasons. I may approach one person to attempt to deal with it, but realize what I really need is my mm -hmm. ally to step in. And so Sarah did this for me. So Singapore was the trip where I had to go and bring some interpreters. So I said to Sarah, you know, how can I approach them and say, I really need this service, you know, to appeal their decision. And so Sarah sat down with me and she's the one who knew how to come up with different options and be able to convince them that I needed the interpreting service. So she was more like a coach for me to really help me develop the kind of defense and the explanation that I was going to need in order to get what I needed to land this appeal. And of course, you know, lo and behold, the, the funds were approved and I was able to have my interpreters with me in Singapore so I could make my presentations to an amazing group of people. This was, you know, very expensive training that these people were attending to have me lead that training with my interpreters. There was enormously beneficial for the business. So sometimes there can be these barriers that can seem overwhelming. Sometimes when you have your ally, they have enough distance from it that they can really point you toward the right kind of support that you need, the right network, the right way to get what you need, because they've played this playbook before, they've seen this movie before, and so they're able to point you in the right direction and help you chase your dreams. So, Yeah, yeah. I, I, I would say that advocates and mentors, in my opinion, are all kind of a continuum of allyship and all important within the roles mm. that we play and making a difference for each other. In terms of kind of advocacy and, you know, the ways that we can show up, it's you're you're kind of talking about some kind of small, simple ways. And then and then I think there are bigger ways too, or it doesn't take that much time, but we can make a big difference in somebody's life, you know, whether that is advocating um, or or showing a pathway to basic you know needs around language. Um, mm, yeah. I think one reason why I chose my ally, when I do choose an ally, it's two different kinds of people. First of all, I choose an mm. ally who's deaf and I also choose an ally who's hearing. So for example, mm. Ken is a deaf man. He, he practically invented YouTube captioning. He's one of the first deaf Googlers to work there at Google. He's, he's been a longtime employee of the company. He knows who's the right people to talk to, to get your, what you need through the company. And then, then when I sometimes need to hearing ally, I need them to bounce things off of, such as I hear a hearing colleague who said this or that to me. And so my hearing ally can be more supportive that way and giving me tips from the hearing culture's point of view. So I have a deaf ally that's giving me the deaf point of view and a hearing ally that's giving me the hearing point of view. So that balance is really helping me choose, you know, what direction to go in. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. And it, it can be throughout our lives from, you know, different, different points in our lives as well, like bigger points in our lives, like getting promotions, changing careers. All of, I, I would say those career change points have been a hugely important for, for me to have allies there, people that are advocating for me and uh, opening up their networks for me when I didn't have those networks. Those kinds of things have made a big difference in my life. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I've, I've learned that sometimes allies, mentors, 
they might not have a fully developed network. Maybe you think, oh yeah, they must have a book. They must have something that's got, got a whole network. Sometimes my network is already well-developed more mm -hmm. than my mentors or my allies. But what I don't know is how to work the network. What's the right time? What's the right place? And this is what I'm learning is, you know, from those people is, okay, you know, I might say to them, oh, I have this person so-and-so. Mm -hmm. And they'll say, well, when did you speak to them last? And I'll say, oh, six months ago. Well, what did you talk about? I'll say, well, I don't remember. You know, and they'll just say, no. <laughs> mm. uh, you need to talk about your project specifically with them. You know, you need to ask your ally to become your sponsor, your project sponsor. This is what was suggested to me. And, um, you know, it's that it's not so much as they, this mentor or ally knew so much about my project, the one who's giving me this advice to go deeper with my ally. It's just that they knew how to do it and they knew this is what you should do. You should have a person really sponsor your project, even if it's a person that you don't know very well. Yeah, yeah, interesting. You know, we we were doing some research on allyship and and learning that what a lot of people want from allies is is building confidence and kind of trusting yourself to and, and kind of that push is a piece of that is is that that push that showing you how to do it and and also pushing you to do it. I think is the other piece of it. Yeah. Yes. You know, one thing that's interesting, research is showing about confidence and trust in terms of uh, working with an ally. So here's the story. Years ago, when I started my HR career, this was at IBM. I was an HR business partner, and this was for uh, the v Vermont manufacturing plant. So, you know, when I got there to start work, I'm all excited. And my boss at the time, who's an HR manager, he was very blunt with me, very ruthless, very blunt kind of guy. That was sort of his personality. And he said, hey, Sam, I took a risk in deciding to hire you. You better prove me right and do your work well. And I was like, wow. You know, I mean, he was, he turned out to be an amazing ally, an amazing advocate for my growth. But, you know, he was telling me the raw truth. He took his reputation on the line to hire me. He took a risk on me, he took a chance on me as a deaf person to do an HR job, which in the whole history of IBM had never, ever happened, yeah. right? In the 100-year history of the company, this is the very first. And so he was like, you're it. You're going to be the one who makes a difference. Don't mess it up. And so I realized, wow, you know, he had a lot of confidence. No pressure. Right, right. No pressure. Yeah. So, you know, and he's got people above him watching what he's doing. And this is where I realized that your allies take risks on you. They're risking mm -hmm. their reputation to do this for you. And so you need to do well for them in return. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And also just to recognize within that also is that pressure of being the first, of being the only is real and important to recognize too, that that's an additional burden that some people carry in the workplace and uh, additional stress as well, I think, for a lot of people um, and important just for us all to re remember and, and realize. Yes. I think a lot of people like us who are in the minority, whether you're Latino, African-American, you're a woman, whatever, you do have that pressure sometimes. And mm -hmm. that's always in the back of your mind. You're feeling that pressure sort of always there. And you, you have to live with it. It's not always by choice. Sometimes it's by default. It's there. Yeah. 
And that is the the the, the top two things that, that we've learned that people want from allies are building confidence and, and trust testing. And so uh, you just kind of gave a great example of that second piece. We want to talk a little bit about mentorship too. You, know, you said at our Ability and Tech Summit back in 2016, when you you, you did a, a talk, you said you had had over 30 mentors in your life. And I just wonder if you could talk about, you know, what stands out, what stands out as a good mentor, what works for you and kind of what have you seen working across your teams? Well, I think that uh, when I was 16 years old, or sorry, in 2016, when we we're talking about the fact that I had 30 mentors, I was working with people who were sitting in Europe, in Asia, in all different parts of America, you know, all over the globe at different levels. Some of them were senior executives. Uh, they were all kinds of different people. Some of them were at my level. Some of them worked at different companies. Some of them were from nonprofit organizations, community members. So I realized that I felt like something was missing because sometimes the mentors you have aren't always good. <laughs> because and, and what's important to be successful is uh, some of them are great people. They're great at what they do, but they don't have the teaching skills. You may have some a good listener, empathetic, very wise, but can they teach? Do mm -hmm. they have the mm -hmm. teaching skills? You know, so the most awesome mentors have that. Here, I'll give you an example. I had a mentor who was brilliant, really brilliant author. And he was focusing on executive coaching. He had written several books on the subject, gave presentations to thousands of people and the different audiences. You know, he did you know trade shows, conferences. Everybody's looking up to this man and in his in his wisdom. And after sitting down with him a few times, I realized he's not a good mentor. And I I thought, okay, what if I asked him to sponsor my project? What if I said, mm. don't be my mentor, sponsor my project? So if I could build a project. On on leadership development for senior managers or something. And if I had him coach me through that, giving me tips on how to build the curriculum, scale up the project, then that could become much stronger. We could have a much stronger launch. We'll have greater participation. And that happened because I was able to sort of twist the role I expected him to play from being a mentor to being more of a coach. So I found he was a great coach, but a terrible teacher. <laughs> and so it's just that little tiny difference that made all the difference. It really changed everything. The whole thing really succeeded because of that. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. And so, Sam, are there any? Any folks that have really worked out well in terms of mentors in your life? What, is, what are qualities do men, good mentors have? Teacher, obviously, is a, is a key, sounds like. Well, I always believe that everyone should have at least three mentors in their life. People, some people say, well, that's a lot. Mm. Well, it's not as many as you think. First of all, you need a spiritual mentor. Right. Some, they don't necessarily have to work at the same place as you, but they're your spiritual mentor that helps you balance your well-being, mm, yeah. your sanity. I have that. And sometimes, you know, I've been through a very stressful week. It's really bad. This spiritual mm -hmm. mentor really helps you. You're not necessarily talking about your work. You're just talking about you as a person. Where are you mentally and emotionally and spiritually? And I think that's really important. Okay. Second type of mentor is a cultural mentor. Somebody like for me, being a deaf person, I always like to have another deaf person who maybe works at the same company that we can share our pain together. For example, even though I was an HR manager, my deaf mentor was an engineer. And I was able to say to, to him, you know, I think I'm being a 
you know, not comfortable here being deaf or, or things are happening because I'm deaf here. Can mm -hmm. you, can I bounce this off of you? And this deaf engineer was able to help me say, yeah, you're not alone. So validate my feelings as a member of the same cultural group who's, who's a minority in this workplace. And, you know, this person has life lessons for me to learn on how to be a deaf person in this environment. And so I, I'm able to develop my cultural identity that way. So that's really important. Then the third type of mentor is someone in your domain knowledge, somebody who's maybe not necessarily from the same career, but maybe somebody who's like two levels up above you, maybe a senior executive, a VP who wants to help you grow in your career. They might not understand my deafness. They don't understand a disability, but they're going to be an advocate for my skills as an HR leader and give me support that way and help me navigate the system that way. Maybe lead me to more high visibility projects. So those are the three, your spiritual mentor, your cultural mentor, someone who helps you really preserve you know, your identity of who you are. And then third, someone who's going to help you grow your career skills. To me, uh, I feel like those are the three essential mentors that everybody should have. I love that. I love that. That's fantastic. Yeah. I, I am kind of thinking about um, the people in my life and I, I agree with you. I don't really thought about that way. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. And how do you think about giving back and to people as mentor, as a mentor or as an advocate? How do you think about that? What do you do as an enemy? Well, you know, when I started my career, I do believe in giving back. Uh, my goal is to give back to my allies, to give back to the people who helped me, the people who hired me, the people who gave me a chance to work with them. And I've always wanted to give back, but I realized, you know, really, that's not the only thing. Often they're not expecting anything. They don't want you to give anything back to them. Maybe a thank you card, mm -hmm. a note of appreciation. But what the biggest award you could give to them is to personally grow and mm -hmm. pay it mm -hmm. forward to the people who are coming behind you. So this is what I believe in is paying it forward. And that's what's been a huge part of my life. For example, there's a special deaf organization in Massachusetts called me and said, you know, we have an HR director position open. We really need somebody for this. So I was able to place a phone call to a friend of mine, a deaf friend of mine to say, hey, there's a job opening here. I know you're in the middle of your career search. You might need to be introduced to this person. And he said to me, Sam, I'm so thrilled. I finally was able to reach my dream. You know, I got this job because of you. And, and how can I pay you back? And I said, don't pay me back, pay it forward. Now you pay it forward to the next person coming along. And this, this is what I believe in. Mm -hmm. So because the whole reason I got where I am is because somebody paid it forward to me. And so that's how I feel like we, we keep this going. Right, right. Absolutely. So I do want to just ask, because I started the show by saying that it's it's easy. This is not hard to, to have interpreters to make this happen. And, and I, I think many people think accommodating deaf colleagues is something there's a barrier, too much of a barrier there. It's a major obstacle to hiring people or to including deaf people. So can you talk a little bit about, and I know this is asking you to, you know, there's a burden here, but can you talk about accommodation and what that looks like for you, like in your work, um, in your daily, daily work? Sure. Absolutely. I think uh, the one thing is that often people you know, who I've worked with in different companies, they'll ask me, you know, how do I hire deaf people? Is it expensive to hire deaf people? You know, why should I be willing to invest in you? My common answer is, I do have a common answer to the question you're asking. First of all, research is proving that any disability accommodation in the last 20 years, the average is less than $500, believe it or not. 
most disabled people, when they get the job, they learn how to adapt. For me, yes, I do depend on interpreters, but there's also a lot of other technologies you can take advantage of, chat rooms, uh, video technology, other other technologies. So that's, that's the one thing. Mm-hmm. Another thing is often people say, can we develop a technology to replace interpreters? And I say, well, really, the communication need belongs to me. So I'm the one who really should be making the, the decision as opposed to us. And so we're all using the interpreter together, even though you know I should make the decision on this. The service is, is for both of us, not just me. And so you're making an investment in our relationship when you do this. And so you have to look at investing in the interpreter service as a good return on your investment. Often, I have companies trying to recruit me because of my HR expertise, first and foremost. You're an expert in that, and you have expertise in technology. Back in 2000, when I was first getting into this career, that was a hot ticket. Not many people had those skill sets, both of them, HR and tech. And so they'll say, they would say at the time, you're worth it for me to hire you and pay for your interpreters because I was able to deliver for them, make improvements in the workforce, grow the organization. And so that way they could look at the interpreting service as a good investment. So first of all, accommodations are not that expensive. Second of all, my niche skills are what really got me the job and that ultimately the expense of the interpreting has led to a positive impact, not a negative one. And so my success is really because people were willing to invest in me. Yeah, and then I, I would add a third, which is just the the value of diversity. That having diverse set of experiences, identities on your team, mm. you know, is going to bring more innovation to the products that you're working on, to the to the work that you're doing around culture, all of those things as well. I think absolutely. Yeah. 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 You know, quite often when I've worked in different companies, often they'll want to do some PR type event, some marketing, some media, and they'll say, hey, Sam, you know, would you come look at it? We're planning to do some work with Disney, do a TV promotion. Do you want to take a look at that? And it was great that they were bringing me in to get a diverse perspective on it. Uh, they bring me out to do recruiting on college campuses and looking for diversity there. And so, yes, it's always to their advantage to bring in as many diverse perspectives as possible. Jumping into questions a bit, we have a few questions about mentorship, a couple of questions about mentorship. So one is from Griselle. I hope I'm saying your name right. You addressed this a little bit, but what do you think about reverse mentoring? Kind of this idea of you know mutual maybe mutual mentorship as well. I think I I think of it as often as mutual mentorship. I love that. I love that reverse mentorship. You know, I still use that today. Maybe for the last fifteen years, when I since I really started my career, I recently hired two instructional designers. They're helping us build an online curriculum for about 7,000 hardware engineers who are seated throughout the world. These two are you know, very expert in online training, which is a skill set I don't have. So I was asking them, teach me what you think we can do here in terms of influencing the direction. So it wasn't like we sat down and had reverse mentor hour. It was more like, hey, I need help understanding this. I need you guys to teach me. So... Mm-hmm then maybe I could teach you more about the abilities of the particular platform I'm using, Adobe Captivate. It was the thing. It's like what it, what it can do, what it can't do. So we were able to really help each other it was through a lot of informal conversations, but, but that helped me become a better leader so that I was able to serve them better. We had things to share with each other. 
I just to just to add to that in my own experiences, I think a lot about, you know, somebody is helping me as a mentor, how I can help them as well. There's just so many ways that that we can help each other. You know, we all have different areas of knowledge and ex- experience and expertise, and we're all also all struggling at different points in our lives and, and can be there for each other at different points in our lives. So I think about the people that I have mentored and the people who have mentored me, and I usually learn something from people I've mentored, and I also try to try to add value to uh, my mentors' lives, too, when I can. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I think sometimes what are you just can ask the person what are, what are the new trends what's the new apps you know what are people talking about it's it, even just the little things you learn from someone you're mentoring are really valuable mm-hmm. absolutely absolutely madeline asked a question as well around the role of ergs in mentorship employee resource groups and affinity groups do you believe that ergs can serve as a collective mentor or do you define mentor as only an individual oh absolutely yeah, I've actually managed several ERGs in diversity as a diversity program manager myself. I've been involved in those groups and actually have put mentorship programs in each of those groups. Uh, I am a member of an ERG. So, yeah, I definitely believe in ERGs. I think it's always, well, first of all, it's an ongoing evolution. You may have some years where the ERG is really active and others where it's not. But over the course of my career, what I've really seen is the networking that happens is really good. For example, I'm Persian. I really don't know who the other Persians are. I might not know who the other Persians are. And I know that we're a unique group of people from the Middle East. We're not easily recognizable. You can't just go up to somebody and say, hey, are you Persian? You know, we don't do that. So you're just sort of at work every day. And it's only through an ERG that you get to that room and you see each other and you say, wow, you know, and so once a year, we have our the Persian New Year celebration, where we enjoy meeting Mm -hmm. each other, seeing each other again, and say, hey, you work in this area of engineering, let's grab lunch sometime. So you don't have to kind of chase each other down, you're there in the group together. And that might lead you to other people that you could meet. And, for, and it's great visibility for me because I'm deaf. I'm, I use sign language, so I'm, I'm easy to spot. But otherwise, other cultures, it's not easy to identify So you know, just by looking. So the ERGs are great that way. The other great thing about an ERG is it's a safe place. It's a safe place to let it all out. Uh, things that aren't working, you want to get feedback. It's always a great uh, place for that. And so, so definitely take advantage of it. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. Melissa Abu Greenlee. And for those of you who don't know who she is, she's she's amazing and um, the founder of deaffriendly.com. Lots of lots of great work she's doing. So please look her up. Um, something to add about accommodations. There are yearly tax credits and deductions for companies who earn a million dollars for making their uh, their accessibility for colleagues, for employees and customers. And she's got a link there that we'll share also after the episode. Thank you. Sophia asks, in my current job. The last two years, I just started being exposed to JEDI, which I think is justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion, allyship, mentorship, etc. And my heart is growing for career focused in HR. Are there books, podcasts, or other resources you'd recommend for someone who wants to start and grow into a career in that direction? Yeah, I think one thing that's beautiful about HR is 
you don't have to be very specialized in anything to get into HR. You can come from a law background, a medical background, any of those other professions, whatever they might be. Uh, I've met a lot of different HR people, amazing people that their initial backgrounds were totally different, you know, from all over the map, from all walks of life, all kinds of different study, areas of study and different professions. So I think the one thing that's most important is do some volunteering. I really do think that may be the best part because then you're showing your uh, soft skills, your HR soft skills, because that's what's really important is being able to communicate, being able to lead people by influence. Some aspects of HR are setting up program or setting up an event or setting up something with the ERG. So do those kinds of things, you know, sign up to do those kinds of things. And then often, you know, you'll be seen doing that. And that visibility is really going to help you. Uh, also, you, there's a lot of uh, educational things you can take advantage of, resources online. There's other professionals, uh, instructional developers, engineers, that have come into the HR career. So hmm. you could have started out as the office secretary and move into being a HR. So I think the most important thing is focus on your soft skills, your emotional intelligence, your ability to empathize, your coaching skills, and then be familiar with team performance. I think maybe the best book I could recommend, I would say probably... Um, the seven highly effective, I'm not remembering the exact title now, but seven characteristics of highly effective people, which are that Steve McCovey book is rather famous. But, you know, and there's a lot of books like that. Actually, habits, there you go. And then uh, I tend to follow one book called by Dr. Marshall Goldsmith. He's an amazing executive coach. So I read lots of his coaching skills, guides, and things like that. That really helped me to coach uh, from it, whether it's employees, working with unions, working with managers, amazing information there. But again, you don't have to be an expert to be in HR is sort of the upshot. Yeah, yeah. And so many different types of skills are important and you can bring to HR to make it better too, I think. You know, I was talking with somebody else recently, and we both have degrees in cultural anthropology. And it's obviously not something where they say on a job description, hey, um, you know, we want somebody with a degree in cultural anthropology, but it absolutely is, it applies and, and can make a big difference in, in this work, in diversity, equity, inclusion work, as well as HR. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Um, you know, my, my minor in college was sociology. And I was, I'm proud to put that down on mm. my resume because mm. it proves I understand how organizations work, how society yeah. works. I think these are things you ought to be proud of, even if it's not listed there in the description. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we just have a couple of minutes and I do want to ask, you and I have been working on diversity, equity, and inclusion and culture and kind of HR for a long time. And it's changed over the years. When we started doing it, it was diversity, equity, and inclusion was kind of a side project, maybe recruiting. And now product teams are beginning to see the importance. It's really starting to be infused in management trainings and management styles. Um, where do you think it's heading next? Well, you know, next is for me thinking, how can I make an even bigger impact, not just on the people level, organizational level, product level, but global level, you know, and this is what I'm pursuing is, you know, pursuing the moonshot every day. I think one thing I'm really grateful for in this sort of last stage of my career here is the people who've given me a chance, people who've given me a chance to grow, not to 
become necessarily ready to hire that minute, but at least recognizing my potential and people who've said, Sam, you know, you're not 100% ready for this yet, but I'm going to give you the chance anyway and give you that chance to grow and be able to pursue my dream. And so now I want to share that and, and, you know, especially working on this sign language project now. I mean, this is a dream project for me uh, to help 70 million people throughout the world be able to get access to sign language or access to translation by being able to sign to their phone. I mean, this is amazing. So in terms of what's next, I think everyone's thinking globally now because the world is moving fast. We're also taking a realistic look at how deaf children are language deprived. They don't have the literacy they need. And a lot of it is because the educational system needs a lot of work around making literacy available to them. And so literacy is really important around the world now for not just deaf children, but any language. So another passion of mine is trying to pursue that. So that in terms of what's next, I feel like that's where I want to make an impact. Awesome. Thank you, Sam. Thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing your wisdom and experience. And Oh, thank you. So grateful to be here. Thank you. Awesome. And thank you, everybody, for being here, for doing this work of change, for your questions and your, and your thoughts that you shared. Um, we'll definitely share some of these resources on our website. Well, one question I have for you today to, for you to think about um, as you go into your week is how might you advocate for somebody in the next few days? Um, how will you show that trust? How will you work to build their confidence? How will you, you know, be there for somebody who needs you um, in small ways or big ways? Next week is how to be an ally in the remote workplace with myself, Melinda Brianna Epler, the founder and CEO of Change Catalyst. A lot of folks have been asking us to talk about this, so figured I'd just take a moment and spend some time with you all just, just talking about what I've learned. Thank you all, and see you next week. Bye, everybody. <laughs> For more learning resources about this episode's topic, visit changecatalyst.co slash allyship series. Allyship is a journey. It's a journey of self-exploration, learning, unlearning, healing, and taking consistent action. And the more we take action, the more we grow as leaders and transform our communities. So what action will you take today? Share your actions and learning with us by emailing podcast at changecatalyst.co or on social media using hashtag allyship podcast. We'd love to hear from you. And thank you for listening. Please subscribe to the podcast and the YouTube channel and share this. Let's keep building allies around the world. Leading with Empathy and Allyship is an original show by Change Catalyst, where we build inclusive innovation through training, consulting, and events. It's produced by Juliet Roy and Be Your Change Media, with the team at Change Catalyst, Renzo Santos, Araya April, Sally Moiwewa, and Emily Moss. Thank you for listening to our show and taking action as an ally. See you next week. <laughs>